All right, I should kick us off because I know that we have miles to travel this evening. Um, I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Um, I suspect that many of you know the library company, but the sort of shortest version I can give you is that we were founded by Franklin, Benjamin Franklin in 1731 as the first subscription library in America. And over the past, you know, 300 odd years, we've changed a little bit um, and now we're a research library and we support all sorts of terrific researchers like some of the folks we're going to hear from today. Um, this is a fireside chat. Um, it is intended to be a weekly webinar series. We're very grateful to our uh, scholarly community for sustaining this. With that, it's my pleasure to introduce not one but two fireside presenters. Um, first, we have Kayla Anthony, who serves as the executive director of the Philadelphia Society for the Preservation of Landmarks, Phila Landmarks, and she's currently in her second year. For 89 years, Phila Landmarks has played a significant role in the historic preservation movement in Philadelphia by restoring, furnishing, and presenting to the public its distinguished house museums. Those house museums include the Powell House, Grimblethorpe, Hill Physic House, and Historic Waynesboro. Previous to this position, Ms. Anthony served as Phila Landmark's Development and Programs Manager, where she honed her vision to focus the organization on programmatic community, excuse me, programmatic community engagement and contributed revenue development. She also served as the Resident Site Manager of the Hill Physic House, graduating summa cum laude with a BA in French and a BA in Theater Arts from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. She brings a diverse creative background to the organization along with a keen understanding of strategic partnerships and networking. Our second presenter is Samantha Schneider, uh, the reference librarian at the Washington Library at George Washington's Mount Vernon. She has an upcoming chapter on Elizabeth Powell in the edited volume, Women in the World of Washington. Set to, the, set to be published by the University of Virginia Press in early 2021, congratulations. She is also currently working on a longer biography of, of, of Elizabeth Powell. She earned her master's in library and information studies and BA in English literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And she is currently pursuing a master's in history at George Mason with a focus on early American women's history. Welcome both. Thank, Thank you. you. But thank you so much, Will, um, and thank you to the library company. We're, we're thrilled to be here today um, talking about a subject that we're obviously both very mm -hmm. passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, we thought, you know, um, when Will, I guess, when he first approached me about doing a fireside chat for the library company about Elizabeth, uh, the first thing that came to my mind was, of course, bringing Sam into the dialogue. <laughs> Sam is um, now what we would probably consider the expert on Elizabeth Powell, and she's been researching her for about two years now. Mm -hmm. um, and Sam has put together in this presentation a really lovely display of source materials that were actually from the library company mm -hmm. because her research yep. has been um, knee deep in oh, um, yes. HSP, the yep. library company, yep. and our own account books. Mm -hmm. um, and we thought that it might be really lovely to kind of talk about like why both of us and um, what is our relationship to Elizabeth Powell. Mm -hmm. um, and for me personally, well, we'll move on to the next slide. Yes. Who was Elizabeth William Powell? And who, and is who she? was she to us? Exactly. <laughs> um, so my first day at Phil Landmarks was a very uh, eventful day. Um, it doesn't happen all that often in our organization, um, but we received a very generous loan from a Powell descendant um, who had gifted, uh, gifted us with a, an account book set of Elizabeth's. And these accounts were um, 
almost about to be thrown out. <laughs> um, so they were cleaning out a storage unit and they were found in um, a trunk and there was a false bottom in the trunk and the, the descendant's husband noticed the false bottom and was like, we have to, what is this? He pu pulled it out and he saw these account books um, and then they brought them to us. And so my first day of work at Film Landmarks, I got to do a deep dive right into <laughs> Elizabeth Powell. So um, the most exciting part about that week actually and um some of you may already know this story who's on who's on this seminar tonight but <laughs> but uh the most exciting moment was when a couple of my colleagues and i come upstairs to look at um the library so the pal house has about a fourth of the the pal's library and just for reference we are in the pal house tonight yes, yes. the mantle and our lady is with us this yeah. evening um but but we came into this very room to look at the library and we just thought, you know, I wonder which books were hers. Like, are there any books here on the shelf that are hers? Um, and a colleague pulled out a book and it was called um, The British Spy. And it is a um, it is a fiction book. But they uh, looked at it and I said, you know, I know we saw accounts of her buying books um, downstairs in these account books. Let's let's see if we have any of them. And I went downstairs and not but 15 minutes later, did we, um, did I turn to a page uh, that said at the very top, a book called The British Buy for $1 and these account books. And you can see on the right here, um, that is the title page where Elizabeth inscribed her name. So from that moment on, I was enamored with Elizabeth. Um, and it, it was, I don't know if any day at Phil Landmarks is quite compared to that one, but but I do, I do love the organization. It's been an amazing time here. Yes. Sam, what, what turned you on to Elizabeth Powell? Well, so as Will said, I work at George Washington's Mount Vernon, and I started there January of 2017. And um, we do a lot of tours at the library because we have a beautiful space. And we have some highlights that we usually pull. And we actually have this letter um, that we pull quite frequently that when I first started, I saw that it was from a woman named Elizabeth Willing Powell. And I'm like, who is this woman? But what I first noticed about this letter is that it had, um, it was written on my mom's birthday. And I know my mom is watching. So hi mom, I'm gonna tell the birthday <laughs> story. Uh, so I, I thought, I thought, how cool is that? Um, but then I started to learn more about the letter and the letter was from this very powerful woman who wrote to, George Washington on the subject of his resignation um, for being president of the United States. And I thought, wow, this woman sounds really interesting. And then I just, I, I started learning more about her. We actually are lucky enough to have a large collection of the Powell letters at Mount Vernon um, because she and her husband and the Washingtons were very good friends. So through a Powell descendant, we also have um, some letters. And so I started looking more into those letters and then it just kind of spun from there. And I was introduced to the fine people at Landmarks and, and it's just all kind of gone from there. So it's been a journey so and far. And what's really exciting about the account books that we have um, is Sam's probably the first person, well, she, she is the first person who, who truly has gone through it and will be incorporating um, the new findings of these account books in her, her research. So it's very exciting and it's a look into Elizabeth's life um, much later in her life than we're used to focusing on, which we'll talk about a yeah. little bit today. Yeah. So I guess we should move on to who is Elizabeth Powell um, and what's, what was her early life like? 
So, so I guess I'll start. Um, so Elizabeth Powell, she was a young woman in Philadelphia. She was born in 1742 and actually lived until 1830. So she was almost 88 when she died. So that'll just kind of give you a think about that as we go on, just how long her life was. Um, but she was born to two prominent Philadelphian families, the Willings and the Shippens. And you might recognize the Shippen name from Peggy Shippen Arnold from Turn, uh, Benedict Arnold's wife, who was also a lot more than just Benedict Arnold's wife. But that those two families, they, they got married, Charles Willing and Anne Shippen, and had 10 children. And Elizabeth was one of those children, um, right in the middle of them. So there's not a lot of primary source evidence from that point in her life, but we can kind of infer based on scholarship of the period that as a wealthy young woman, she would have received quite an education. So that kind of was the basis of the start of her life. Um, she was very consistently into education her whole life. Um, very um, well read. She would have been learning how to dance, all geography, geography history, uh, the sciences, all sorts of things. So she really was an interesting young woman. Um, and the, the images that we've included on the screen, um, the image on the left is the Willing home. So that's her childhood home. And it actually sat just down the block from where the Powell house is now. It was torn down two weeks after that picture was taken. And I don't know if you can see the little credit line, but that is actually an image that's at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Um, so that just kind of shows the the wealth she was born into, having a large house like that, that sort of. And, yeah. and yeah. Third Street and Fourth Street right over, this was really the epicenter of Philadelphia's yeah. social life. Yeah. So where she was living was actually very relevant Central. to the fact yeah. that she you know, would be brought up in these social circles mm -hmm. um, that would afford her um, the opportunity to move in their circles. That she yes, yes. In. And then this this miniature in the middle is a miniature that's actually here in this in this room, actually. <laughs> um, and it's it's by an unknown artist, but it's Elizabeth Willing, circa late 1750s, 1760s. So again, kind of a sign of her her status that she would have had a miniature painted. And we don't know who it was given to. Could have been Samuel Powell. Could have been a family member. We don't know. Um, but then the image on the right is just kind of meant to show her her lifelong love, love of reading. That's a list of books in her almanac that says a list of novels I think well worth purchasing. And I don't know if she had checked them out at the library previously because she did uh, have a membership to the Phillips Circulating Library. So she was she was uh, she was coming up with some ideas before finally making the purchase. So so yeah. So that's that's kind of early Elizabeth. And education was really um, a major focus of her life throughout her life. So mm -hmm. while, it, of course, it started in, in, her, in her youth, um, she was very um, well educated throughout her life and very passionate about it, as you can see from um, this inscription that was um, done for her from Benjamin Rush. Sam, would you like to sure. talk a little bit about this? So people watching may recognize the name Benjamin Rush. He was big deal in Philadelphia, really a, an institution in Philadelphia. He was a medical professional. He was a member, um, he was an advocate for women's education, abolition. Um, but specifically for this, he was an advocate of women's education. And actually he published this pamphlet. It was originally a speech and he published the pamphlet and dedicated it to Mrs. Elizabeth Powell. Um, he knew that the subject of 
the 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 pamphlet and the, the idea of women's education was um, somewhat prejudice. So he he wanted to use her name to make sure that people understood that this was a legitimate respectable, respectable thing. And she her name held a lot of weight. Um, so this quote in the middle was actually a letter from her that is in the library company papers, in the Rush papers, um, written to him in 1795. So shortly after her husband died, um, someone approached her with the idea, with asking her about what they should do for their own daughter's education. And Elizabeth decided that this pamphlet would be what, what she should give that person. Mm-hmm. And so she couldn't find it um, within their library. She couldn't, she couldn't figure out where it was. So she writes Benjamin Rush and says a very funny thing about, I well recollect that you did me the honor to present me with a number of copies of your excellent treatise of education. The work entirely met my ideas on that interesting subject that I dispersed them with avidity. So she clearly was, she gave them all out. Her husband had her keep one, um, but then she couldn't find it. So it's just very interesting that she, she clearly supported this and supported women's education. So, and, and did throughout her, and did throughout her life. life. Yeah. So this is really the groundwork for what allowed her to sort of move into the next phase of her mm-hmm. life, um, which was a very social and political phase of her mm-hmm. life. So this of course is a William Birch print. Um, and this is a, a third street, which is where we are today and Spruce street. The, the building on the corner there is the Bingham mansion, which was her, Oh, relative. Which oh, William Bingham. William oh, Bingham. Uh, William and Anne Bingham. Yeah, Anne Bingham was her niece. So, go. yes. And then yes. you can see in the far distance there, there is uh, the Powell House in the distance. Um, so Elizabeth, obviously coming from a really important social circle here in Philadelphia, um, becomes of age and it is that marrying time. And we're really not sure exactly how Samuel and Elizabeth met. Um, we can't quite pinpoint yeah. that, but we do know that they would have probably had knowledge of each other in Philadelphia's um, Pretty social. small social circles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Samuel um, also came from a, a wealthy family. He inherited his fa- uh, grandfather's fortune at a very young age. Um, who in his grandfather was a carpenter and he owned a lot of property in Philadelphia. And Samuel uh, went on a very long tour of Europe, uh, which was not uncommon for the time, but, but it the was length of his twice tour as long as it was, <laughs> was much longer than yeah. uh, most gentlemen at the time spent in Europe. So he was there for seven years um, and he he rubbed elbows with a lot of um, enlightened thinkers while he was abroad, like Voltaire and the Pope. Mm-hmm. Um, we assume he had a very lovely time abroad um, and he came back uh, as he was a Quaker he came back an Anglican which we do think was probably a strategic move um, because this afforded him the opportunity to uh, begin his political career mm-hmm. um, so again as we mentioned they don't we don't really know exact exactly when these two would have met um, but these two don't have a lot they don't have any letters that actually survive no. between mm-hmm. the two of them because they really weren't uh, apart all that often. And um, so all we know really truly about their their relationship um, is coming through the eyes of others who wrote about them. And the Marquis de Chateaulieu, who clearly was very enamored with Elizabeth as well, not in that way, but enamored with her to write enough about her, um, makes this really lovely comment on the equality and the mutual respect of their relationship. He says, indeed, it would be difficult to separate them from each other, two persons for who 20 years have lived together in the sweetest union. I shall not say as man and wife, which would not convey the idea of perfect equality in America, but as two friends happily matched in point of understanding, taste, and information. 
And it's really just really lovely to see that that you know it was obvious to yeah. the people that they were entertaining here at the Powell yeah. House that sort of mutual respect that existed between these two. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's it definitely it definitely yeah gives you a glimpse into how how they operated as a couple, but also how they operated their their parties and their salons. Um, so I think next we kind of want to talk about the entertainment and the house. Yeah, so <laughs> they they were married um, August seventh, mm -hmm. I believe, seventeen sixty nine, and just before that they purchased this lovely house um, on Third Street, two forty four South Third Street. Come visit us <laughs> uh, at the Powell House. Um, but they purchased it on August second. Samuel purchased it from Charles Stedman. This is uh, from his account books, um, which is also in the Library Company collection. And um, Charles Stedman was a merchant and a shipmaster. Uh, he went bankrupt mm -hmm. shortly after uh, they broke ground on this house. And I'm not even sure that he ever truly lived yeah. here. I don't think he did. I don't actually. think he did yeah. either. Yeah. Um, but it was put on the market and shortly thereafter it was purchased by Samuel and he and Elizabeth moved in shortly after their marriage. Mm -hmm. um, because I guess Samuel had experienced all these lavish tastes abroad in Europe, he decided to do a little renovation on the house. Um, and he employed Robert Smith as a builder and architect to do some of the beautiful um, Rococo ceiling and uh, moldings that are in the room behind us in the ballroom. Um, but he also furnished the house in his, the finest European tastes, which you can see again from the Marquis de Chatelier's comment here, where he says that Elizabeth received me in a beautiful English home adorned with beautiful prints and very good copies of the best paintings in Italy. So he was trying to really bring his experience yeah. back to Philadelphia with him. And it was somewhat unusual to have such a European inspired home, I think, in Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. And they were definitely setting setting the stage for themselves. They were creating this home to be their stage for entertainment Absolutely. and really building the network that they had brought together from their separate lives into one. And they mm -hmm. really, by the mid-1770s, made their home the social center of the Philadelphia scene. Yes. So, so they... They had a ballroom, which is they which, did, which is right behind us. <laughs> yes, which is in the room behind us, uh, or, or the room behind us. Um, but it's also the room in this picture. <laughs> yes, and so this picture is from the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You are reading that correctly. Um, the original woodwork was taken out of the room um, in the early 20th century and installed in the Museum of Art. Uh, and it is unfortunate, but it is a good thing that it is being there and well preserved and it allowed us to restore the room behind us um, to its current uh, current standard right now um, when, it, when the house became a house museum in the 30s. So it was a great frame of reference for us. Um, and we are fortunate that this also still exists at the Museum of Art. But this is where the epicenter of the entertainment yes. is happening. Yes. Um, so in, in many, many lavish parties were ha happening here. John Adams himself mentions the most sinful <laughs> feast again at the Pals, um, talking about how much he ate and drank and how much they enjoyed um, his, his stay there. Um, and this really amazing quote from Anne Ship and Livingston that, that mm -hmm. Sam mm -hmm. points out here um, talks a lot about like, the kind of images you would yeah. see. What, yeah. what, what kind of these, what, what do these parties look like, and, Yeah, What they, were these people wearing? Exactly. So they were wearing um, French hats with five white plumes nodding in different ways. So just really opulent, 
opulent dress for an opulent party. They were really meant to be seen, meant to be seen, meant to show their their status in the world. Um, Anne Ship and Livingston was one of Elizabeth Powell's relatives, I think a niece. Um, so she went to Mrs. Powell's, which we see quite frequently that it was often Elizabeth that was the one it wasn't referenced. Samuel's yeah, it was it was Mrs. Dying Powell's. Mrs. Powell's. <laughs> so so yeah, it's just a really interesting example from kind of the 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 slope upwards of their life as as the social scene of Philadelphia. This is from 1783, so so it's just a really interesting little poem. Yeah. So that moves us on into the salons. And so in, in addition to entertaining, the pals weren't just having a good time with, mm -hmm. amongst their friends. It was very much so a strategic, social and political move yes. to hold these salons. And Elizabeth was absolutely 100% an active participant. Oh, yes. Um, it's very clear based on others writing of her, mm -hmm. how outspoken and intellectual and how much of a conversationalist she was. So she was absolutely driving these conversations. Um, and with very important political yeah. men. Um, so she was an active participant in this, which was, you know, I won't say is completely uncommon for the time, Well, but maybe not quite as outspoken yeah. as, as she clearly was. And the role, the role that she would have played as the, as the, the, hostess of the salon she that was the role that really orchestrated the conversations mm -hmm. um picked what was discussed but this this i think she took it kind of a step further with with the climate she was in this wasn't just a salon hosted in a in a city that wasn't currently having the the intense evolution that philadelphia was having sure. yeah and yeah. she herself recalls <laughs> much later in the 19th century that I will remember to have frequently associated with the most respectable, influential members of that convention that framed the constitution and that all important subject was frequently discussed at our house. So this was really, you know, her way of using her domestic sphere to really imprint her yeah. influences on the budding Republic. And, and this was yeah. the opportunity to use what was afforded to her as a woman yep. in a way to influence uh, and, the new country. Yeah. And it kind of would have been, it would have been, it's the domestic sphere, but it's also, it's her own public. It's, right. it's, it was her public world. Um, it wasn't, she got things done in it, which is which is very interesting. And then the whole idea of the the Constitution being discussed there, since she was such an active participant in these conversations, since these people did take her seriously, it's a big claim. But I like to imagine that some of her ideas helped these men write the Constitution, and really that her ideas just are within so much of what the the founding of the Republic. So, and, and there is a tangible example of that with our good friend, George Washington, uh, who often attended these salons, including during the Constitutional Convention. Yeah. So that brings us to <laughs> George <Not> Washington. <laughs> um, so, so my, my chapter for, for the upcoming book is uh, framed around George and Elizabeth's friendship um, with putting Elizabeth in Philadelphia as a whole. It's not just it's not just who she was in relation to George, but the two of them, their their friendship is really a great example of her reputation, her intelligence, um, how people took her seriously within Philadelphia and how she was able to build her own network. And the kind of peak of that is being friends with the president of the United States. Absolutely. Um, but I do really briefly want to mention, so they, they, as far as their friendship goes, they met in the 1770s. They became friends in the 1780s. Um, and then they, they stayed friends throughout their life. But these two portraits that we have on here, um, both have really interesting stories. I'll briefly talk about them. 
Um, the portrait on the right is George Washington by an artist named Joseph Wright. And actually that image is the exact portrait the copy that the Powells owned. So at oh, some sure. point, yes, at some point in the 1780s, they either commissioned the portrait, they were given the portrait, the, the exact story isn't clear, but it's really cool to imagine that Elizabeth had this portrait. She had this portrait in her last house that she lived in. There's a great anecdote, which I won't go into right now, talking about how that portrait was in a public place. So she very much was was proud of her relationship with Washington and wanted to show that she was friends with him and he was friends with her. But the portrait on the left, I really do want to want to mention this is a newly acquired portrait for the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. It is a beautiful portrait of Elizabeth Powell, um, painted circa 1793, also by the artist Joseph Wright. Um, there's been some scholarship on this done by one of our curators, and that's the conclusion that has been come to, and there's more to do, of course, research-wise, but it's a beautiful portrait, it's unfinished. Um, we think that might've been because Joseph Wright died in the yellow fever. And the portrait, Kayla and I were talking about this, and Kayla mentioned prior to this, how we talked about how this was maybe commissioned for her 50th birthday, mm -hmm. because she turned 50 in 1793. So the party itself was very lavish and there were poems and things, but it was kind of, it was a big deal. It was a big anniversary. and. It's, it's just a beautiful portrait. Uh, and, and really it provides a snapshot into like what she, like who she looked like, who she yeah. was when she yeah. had this relationship with Washington. Yep. Um, yep. And what's also really special about this and for all the library company viewers, like you are getting the debut of yes. this portrait. Yes. So no one else has seen this yes. before. I mean, I have seen it. Yes. But, but um, this is a yeah, newly acquired portrait from Mount Vernon mm -hmm. and it's a really nice um, little eclipse into her later life. Um, when she was really, really influential. Yep, at the peak, and 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 it's kind of what she looked exactly what she looked like when she wrote the letter that I'm going to briefly talk about next. Yeah. Um, this is the big letter. So this is the letter that I first got to know Elizabeth Powell through with the whole birthday thing. But this letter, this is one of many letters that she wrote to George Washington. But this is by far the most tangible, obvious example of their deep friendship with one another and her influence on him and her influence on changing the changing the route of the country. She, she knew what she was doing when she wrote this letter. So she had had a discussion with George Washington um, the day before the start of the election process, so on November 1st, 1792, and he expressed to her that he was considering not running a second term as president. And this was not the first time he mentioned this. He had started discussing it months prior. And the the cool thing is, is that the only other people he seemed to discuss it with, at least that's documented, are members of his cabinet. So she was the only, only woman and the only friend that he discussed this with. So that really shows how he viewed her. He almost viewed her, I think, as a member of his cabinet. Uh, and so this, this letter, after the conversation, she we like to think it might have happened in this room. She sat down and wrote an eight page letter full of reasons why he should not run for president mm -hmm. again, or why he should run for president again. <laughs> uh, and so it's very dramatic, um, very long, but it it's just very interesting because she she is, she's friends with him and she's doing this for him, but she's also doing it for the welfare of our common country. Um, and at the end of the first page, she says that the 
this this letter, if she didn't write it, it would be inconsistent with my friendship for you to withhold. So, so there, we're, yeah, we're hearing yeah. from her own mouth that it, it is would not be normal for her to hold her tongue on such a subject that is so near and dear to her heart. Yes, yes. Um, and you can see that obviously they had a very close relationship for her to feel comfortable enough to say such a thing. Yes, yes. And then I did want to include a letter from from after he did accept the presidency. Um, he wrote to a friend that. It, it was not an easy decision and he still didn't necessarily want to take it. But he said, my, as my particular and confidential friends well know that it was after a long and painful conflict in my own breast that I decided to do this again. And I like to think of the parallel between inconsistent with my friendship for you and then my particular and confidential friends well know. Yes. So she was clearly one of his particular and confidential friends. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but this is, like you said, Sam, pretty much the pinnacle of, yeah, of yeah. her, of her um, political influence in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, but she moves on, um, you know, much later in her life um, to continue to influence future generations of Philadelphians and uh, to make an impact in Philadelphia. Yes. Um, so Samuel dies in 1798 of the yellow fever epidemic. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The other one was 1798. And... Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately they don't have um they don't have any children so yeah. all of their children died in infancy and um you know this doesn't necessarily this isn't an ending for elizabeth though and that's what we've Not really discovered in these account books is that she's still buying um china and silver and furniture furniture yep. food yep. um she does leave behind this house on third street though so she moves and she breaks ground on a new house um mm-hmm. on chestnut street on chestnut street um, yes which we have a lovely print and view from um, the library company as well about this this house on Chestnut Street, which Sam actually discovered, so feel free to chime in on sure, this. But, yeah, but part of it is is Elizabeth's house. It's not actually yes, the whole thing. It's not yeah, that house. Yeah, um, but, yeah. But she moves on, um, started a, a new chapter of her life, mm-hmm. and and does this as a you know a single widowed woman. She takes on the account books of Samuel's right away. Very, she picks yeah. them up within two months of his death, mm-hmm. and she starts to continue to manage um, the real the property and the real estate and collecting up the rents, um, one of which was the city tavern. Yes, um, yes. So, which we walked by earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, this image is really a striking, very cool image. Yeah, of, it's yeah. a little bit later than um, Elizabeth's life, but you get a kind of a feel for how busy the Chestnut Street um area Area was at that time and she like was absolutely still entertaining which is um not only proved in her account books but also in this uh clipping from the national gazette where Mm -hmm. it states how she um entertained uh, the marquis de lafayette when he came back into the city for his grand tour Mm -hmm. and return and um after the ball he he went over to pals with a select select circle of ladies and gentlemen Um, so clearly it was like noteworthy enough yeah you know, to be put in the paper to be put in the paper mm-hmm. and that is where he went after yep. his yep. honor that he ball. chose to go to her and that was actually six years before she died so yeah. so this was much this later was much life. later in her life 
Um, and we did include a couple of other quotes, actually both from Adam's family members. Yeah. So, so one kind of cool example of, of young people coming to see her and seeking her out um, is a couple of letters from Louisa Adams from 1822 when she was in Philadelphia. She writes to both John Quincy Adams and John Adams um, about going to visit Elizabeth. And she says she's one of her favorites. And she also calls her an antique above all price, which is not in this, but I love that. <laughs> but she, she describes the feel of what was going on at Elizabeth's at that time, what an event would have been like there. It would have been more subdued. It would have been at this, this was a tea that they were taking, but it would have been good conversation. Um, her conversations were delightful and full of anecdote and polished by reading, yeah. as we've talked about multiple times, um, and to which she has been much devoted. And she looks and acts like a duchess, which I love. <laughs> um, but then the other thing that we wanted to include on here was that even though people couldn't come back to see her they they reflected on their time with her which is She's what, a she was a state yes so this this little quote from john adams actually is from a letter a reply to a letter from louisa where she says she wishes that he and mrs powell could be together again because their reminiscences would be delightful so he does write a funny a funny thing about how if he could run and about Philadelphia as he did 48 years ago, he would now visit Mrs. Powell before anything and that he loves her now as well as he once did. And he toasted her at a party with some sort of compliment that he <laughs> was, <Sarah>. yeah. <laughs> who apparently took it very well. Yes, um, yes. But, but um, it is funny because he later goes on to say, although she didn't like me yeah, very well. I liked her. I really liked her. Um, so it's clear that, you know, she she really had a lasting impact on the, everybody yeah, in this generation yeah. and then the next. Yeah. Um, so the most, the person that she probably had the largest influence on was her nephew, John Harris. Um, and this is a portrait of him by Sir Thomas Lawrence when he was in England. Yes, that, when yes. He was in England, which yes. she sent him on the tour. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So, so John Hare Powell, we we wanted to talk about him because he really was kind of an he was he was very much her focus in her family. She focused. She influenced so many individuals, so many people. But John Hare Powell was kind of her favorite, I think, yeah. or I would say he was her favorite. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he he was the last of her nieces and nephews to be born. Um, he was born in 1786, and she really took a liking to him right away. She had lost all of her sons and a daughter, um, but she took him in and really decided that he was going to be the one that she would spend the most care with. Um, she, she made sure he had the best education. She, she started corresponding with him frequently. Grooming yes, him. grooming him to become very much the next, the next upstanding citizen of, um, of the United States. And she sent him on a tour of, of Europe when he was 19. And there's some very funny correspondence between them at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And it just, it's a good example of how her educate, like wanting to educate her, her nieces and nephews and family members, how it did and did not work, I guess, right. like, or did work, but how it was received by the individuals. So, so this is a, a fun example where she had written to him telling him that he needed to work on his, his handwriting. Mm -hmm. And it was not very good. And she couldn't read it. And she wanted to read his letters, but, but she couldn't. In so fact, she even, she even tried to, tries to translate. Yes. So you can, letters. yes, you can see a 
above scratched, it says in tiny little handwriting scratched. Uh, but we won't read you the whole quote because it's long, but this is just a, a, an interesting example of how one descendant or one ancestor, like nephew of hers. Yeah. Oh, unhappy. Yeah. I've <laughs> had an aunt who after three and 20 years could not make the agenda. <laughs> and then he just goes on and yeah. on. And it's very dramatic, but it's very sweet and cute because they both sort of have this like very jovial, playful yeah. repertoire, uh, rep yeah. um, rapport with one another where they where they just sort of tease each other, but she is still trying to teach him and, yeah. and get yeah. him to be a respectable citizen. Yeah. Um, and it's really sweet just to look at their, just as, as an example of like how much he really cared for her yeah. and, she, and he for her, her as well, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. which I think is really beautifully outlined in the next quote that we have um that she's right he's writing to his sister. sister yeah there's there's sets and set there's all different letters at hsp but this is one he he's very silly with his aunt but he does multiple times this is only one of many times where he talks about how much he loves her how much gratitude and affection he has towards her to the best aunt that certainly ever lived which i love mm -hmm. and he says that a lot so so that's just a nice even though they were interacting so silly and he was so silly back to her he clearly cared and, and yes. appreciated the, yes. the and in fact he actually also changed his name um from john Powell hare to john hare Powell um in order to inherit the Powell fortune um and so he was absolutely her i think her favorite yeah. nephew. um and like as we've mentioned um we've had some lovely descendants who have um loaned items to mm -hmm. us and donated mm -hmm. to Mount Vernon. Um, and they are actually all descendants of John here. Yes. So yes. Um, he has a soft spot, I think, in our, in our, in our organization yes. as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it wasn't only family members that she was influencing. He, she, he, she had a, a broad influence um, among um, the, the different founding fathers' uh, relations as well. Yep. Bush, yep. Washington is probably like, the best example of that yes. because they have a really Fun, fun, silly relationship yes, as yes, well, and yes. maintained it for quite a number for, of years until until his death. They they met in 1783, and they were consistently seeing each other until 1829, when he died, or around 1829. Um, they were seeing each other, but this this uh, Bushrod Washington is an example of an early an early period when she was trying to start really making these these young men and women into good citizens. Um, he met Elizabeth through his his aunt and uncle his uncle really uh and and it was a great connection for him because the powells really represented the social epicenter so by knowing them he could get his own foot in the door um but they they really took a liking to him especially elizabeth um there's several letters from bushrod to his mother um and this is only one anecdote of several but he he really just kind of adored her and adored the 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 education she gave him and she was very funny with him and she in this example she she called him out on every foible which she discovered and from thence takes the opportunity of correcting them so she in this example she gives him a watch string because she didn't like the one she was the he one was he wearing. had yeah. yeah so it yeah. wasn't it wasn't good enough for him for yeah some reason. yeah so <laughs> she told him to wear it in front of her <laughs> surprised him with a new watch yeah um, yeah but it's just a very sweet again kind of picture you know and she didn't have children of her own but mm -hmm. she really um was able to have a strong influence on a lot of different yes lives. yes and bushrod's a great great example of that too so for the last bit we we want to talk about her influence on the city or her legacy within philadelphia so so as we've talked about she when she moved from her third street residence she did not stop 
being involved in politics, being involved in city affairs, she, she really was an active player until the end of her life. Um, and that did not only include influencing people and interacting with people, it was also building up the city of Philadelphia. Right. So, And she was supporting a lot of different organizations yes. in Philadelphia. And these are actually all from the account books that we have here at Phil Landmarks. Um, so from later in her life, but she was supporting a lot of children's organizations and women's, women's organizations. Yep. Yep. So this one on the top there is from 1813 is a subscription to the Female Association for the Relief and Employment of the Poor. Um, the one in the center there from 1816 is gave Miss Abercrombie and Miss Rush $30 in gold for the use of the Orphan Society of Philadelphia. And the one at the bottom uh, in 1818, she purchased books um, for St. Peter's Sunday School, which we were researching as well, which mm -hmm. were much more um, secular. Than yeah, and they were, yeah, they were really reading. reading and teaching, yeah, teaching children how to read so she was giving money for the books to to educate these children which is very so it's very much yeah. a through line throughout yes her entire yes. throughout life. her life but yes. she was trying to you know absolutely contribute and build up to the city build up the yes. city of philadelphia yes. as well yes. um probably the most notable um contribution she made um, was to the Pennsylvania Abolition Society. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And this is really cool. You should talk about it, Sam, because you found oh, yeah. it. Um, <laughs> so, but it's in her yes, will. Yes, um, yes. And, and the, the Powells did um, have four, at least four enslaved individuals in their home um, within the 1770s. By 1790, in the 1790 census, um, they do, they, it's, they're not listed as having any slaves in their household. So they, they either manumitted the, the slaves throughout the, the enslaved people throughout the 1780s or began um, hiring them on as paid servants but they they her that that affected her and her opinions evolved over time as many people's did but um, the best example of this and how her opinion changed is in her will she donates um, $100 a year for 20 years to the Pennsylvania Abolition Society because as you can see in the quote, she, she abhorred slavery under any circumstance and considered the practice of holding our fellow creatures in bondage alike inconsistent with the principles of humanity and the free Republican institutions of our country. So this, this was a big deal. And the, the, um, the clipping on the left is the minutes from, from the society and they copied her will into that. Which and then- really great. Yes. The outline we're gonna transcribe yes. at the beginning of this yes. part of the will. Yes. And it's also in the obituary. So it not only was in her will, which would have been read to her family, but it was published in her very long and detailed obituary. So it was made very public and very clear her thoughts on it and whether or not that was a request from her or one of her one of her nieces or nephews who wrote the who wrote the obituary. It's not clear, but it's really cool that that is in her obituary. And and yeah, so this is. This is just kind of the kind of the final example of, of her life. Yeah. So and, she, yeah. And, and as you mentioned at the beginning, she lived to be. Um, she died in 1830, so she lived to be about 87. Seven, yeah. Um, so she had a very long life, um, but but she was obviously highly esteemed from all who knew her. Yes. And we just thought it was so so fitting to end on this quote um, from Louisa Adams to John Adams. Her mind is as vigorous as ever, and, and she loves to talk over times past when active memory retraces pleasures long gone by and still fills her vivid fancy with actors and scenes in which she's shown a bright brilliant constellation. <laughs> it's so, one of the best quotes. <laughs> yeah, so it's clear, it's clear that, you know, she was quite, um, you know, a, a figure in Philadelphia yeah, and yeah. really, really well admired and liked and, and 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> So yeah, so thank you for letting us talk about this. Yes, and we're looking forward to questions. Thank you both. Um, That was wonderful. Um, (laughs) You're welcome to stop sharing your screen so we can go back into a more conversational mode. We already have uh, a number of questions here for you. (laughs) Great, and they're super uh, specific questions that I would have no idea how to answer. So I'm very (laughs) eager to see how you do with them. Don't at us. just to sort of situate this in like the current moment, you know, we're thinking a lot about infectious disease right now. And I was thinking about that, that image of her in 1793 at the age of 50, which also happened to be 1793, the year that she loses her husband. Yeah, like how do her salons change in that context? Well, or do we have a sense of how they change? I yeah, so she, so she, she does go into a period of mourning, um, but pretty quickly you start seeing in her papers that people are talking about going to her house, going to dinners. Um, John Adams mentions that he writes to Abigail that he has recently gone to Elizabeth's house and she's much afflicted, but she's still hosting these dinners. It doesn't seem like she had quite the the passion may not have been there right away again. It doesn't sound like it was as consistent as it was before, but she does start hosting things again. She she does not go to as many events. That's at least what people have said in their letters, but she was still very active. Um, yeah. And, and, and so just to anticipate a question that just came up, she stayed in Philadelphia during the Yellow Fever episode. Uh, no, oh, she, she, she went to her, uh, brother's estate. Um, Samuel stayed in Philadelphia. He went to the, to her brother's house and, and visited for a day and then actually went back into the city and he contracted yellow fever and died on their, um, on their farmland. Yeah. So it sounded like he was really, did not want to leave the city. I mean, he of course held a public office and mm -hmm. he felt that he needed to be here to do business. So, <laughs> so she did flee, but he unfortunately did not. And then eventually yeah. he died in Powelton Village. You're yeah, familiar with yeah. That. If you're familiar that was- with Powelton, that is named after the Powells. That's that's what her. That's their, That's what they called their land. Country. Yeah, their country estate. Yeah. So David Maxey is going to bring us uh, some attention to their relationship. And he asked, do you think that Elizabeth Powell and Samuel Powell knew each other before Samuel returned from Great Britain? And do you feel that their marriage was a matter of convenience rather than some kind of deep romantic engagement? I, I don't think that it was, I don't think it was a marriage of convenience. I really don't. There's, there's some very um, interesting letters that are her private um observations on him and on their relationship and they're very genuine um of course they both were good standing political you know powerful people so yes it would have been a powerful match but i don't know if they met before he left for for europe when he when he went to to great britain and italy um unfortunately the the records don't survive um but i but you did mention yeah. so we were actually talking about this for dinner tonight yeah. <laughs> and she brought up like this really amazing transcription in a bible that is at hsp mm-hmm. that elizabeth mm-hmm. wrote uh, um, on the death of, of samuel and it is it is quite it's moving. intense it's yeah very, yeah it's it's clear how much she loved yeah. him yeah um, it, it was so not yeah maybe maybe it wasn't an initial match of love but it certainly developed, developed into, into it yeah <laughs> 
David Kozlow um, asks, have you found any evidence, be they letters, journals, et cetera, demonstrating that Powell had connections with Hillary Baker, who was the mayor of Philadelphia in 1796 and 1797? He died of yellow fever in, eight, in 1798 because mm -hmm. unlike wealthy residents of the city, he remained in Philly during the epidemic to give assistance. You know, I have gone through all of all of her letters at this point, um, and there's not a lot that survived from the 1790s, after, which is so difficult because, um, and I've not seen that name, mm -hmm. but but I, it would be interesting to look into and see if I happen to come across it. She she was there's a few letters talking about her from that period, but no one no one um, by that name is mentioned. She she may have known him. She knew so many people, mm -hmm. um, but but there's no specific mention of any interaction with the two of them. So. Denise Bachlin asks, um, who was living in the Powell House during the nine month British occupation during the American Revolution? What condition was the mansion in after the war? Uh, well, Powell's were. The Powell's were living there. Yeah, <laughs> the they Powell's stayed. Were living here, so they stayed. So Samuel, um, he actually signs the Oath of Allegiance right before the, the British leave. Pretty uh, late. <laughs> Philadelphia. Um, so, and, and the house actually is occupied by the Earl of Carlisle, um, and, but they, they don't kick the pals out. They just kick them to um, servants' quarters. So they mm -hmm. ended up having to stay in the back of the house um, and what is an addition here today. Yeah. Um, so they, it's, it's an interesting story, really, because they were, they're very politically savvy mm -hmm. and they held their cards close to them. Mm -hmm. um, so they were able to sort of play both sides and, and play it well. <laughs> they were. And Carla Carlisle writes that, you know, they are almost the best of friends and they take tea every day. And meanwhile, yeah. a few few weeks before Samuel signs the Oath of Allegiance to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So they're living with that secret, yeah. which I, th I think that maybe, you know, we don't talk about that enough, but I think yeah. it's a really fascinating yeah. angle that like, yep. you know, this is, this is, reason this is mm -hmm. you're going against the, the british crown here and mm -hmm. you're a british citizen and you've done this and now you have a, a british officer living in your yeah. home who, and who, who likes yeah who with. you're cordial with yeah. so it's quite it's quite an accomplishment on yeah that, on yeah that yeah so but as far here. as the the state of the mansion as far as we know it was there was nothing that was was hurt i mean nothing happened they were i mean unfortunately because of their position in philadelphia i think they were not um, yeah. targeted, yeah. or targeted. So I've got two questions about Samuel Powell, uh, one from August uh, Widmeyer and the other from William Jordan, both asking sort of along the same lines, wasn't he once the mayor of Philadelphia? Yes, yes. I guess we didn't we even didn't bring say. that up. He this was. was. This is Elizabeth's show. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was the uh, mayor of Philadelphia under the British crown, the last mayor of Philadelphia under the British crown, and the first mayor of Philadelphia in the New Republic. Yes. So he was able to continue his title. Um, and yes, and he became speaker of the Pennsylvania Senate uh, mm -hmm. after he turned down another term as mayor. So, so yes, he was indeed the mayor of Philadelphia. Thank you for pointing. That Thank out. you for pointing that out. <laughs> David Maxey uh, mentions that the Joseph Wright portrait is fascinating because um, it, it's a portrait of Elizabeth Powell that shows her age in 1793 much more than the Pratt portrait, whose date. Uh, whose dating absorbed me and which is often given uh, the erroneous, I argue, date of 1793. What do you think about the date of the Pratt portrait that hangs in the Powell House, as you just showed, on loan from PAFA? So scholarship on that has dated it a little earlier than 1793, um, just based upon the age of the portrait that Mount Vernon has recently received. Um, 
And so it's it's starting to be that we think it's it's around 1780, not 1793. Got it. Yep. Excellent. Yep. Uh, David Coslow asked, did Powell give money to the Quaker school that educated both black and white children? Uh, she, I know that she did to um, several schools. I'm free schools. free schools. So I'm not sure if that was that that term is not. I think what we think of it as, but. But she did send one of her indentured servants to um, one of the schools that was run by the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, the, the Clark, Clarkson School, I believe is what it was called. Um, so that there's there's so many financial records. I would I would like to continue to go through them and make sure I figure out what exactly it was. So so to be determined. <laughs> Uh, Martha King uh, asked, did, did Elizabeth Powell have any suitors after Samuel's death? Well, Martha, thanks for <laughs> asking that. Um, this is new. This is, well, a little bit. so she, <laughs> yes and no. Uh, there's, there's an odd letter that is written in 1797 by two kind of gossipy girls who live in Delaware. Um, Cadwallader and Ridgely, so they're they're uh, that's their last names. But they're talking about Elizabeth making an appearance at George Washington's last birth night ball, and they say that she looked elegant. She was wearing a black velvet dress, uh, but they talk about how she's not married anymore, so she could go to more things if she wanted to, but she doesn't, and that she would not marry anyone under a Washington. But they also bring up a someone mentioned a Major Butler. And so Major Butler was Pierce Butler, um, who was one of the uh, senators from South Carolina, I believe, which Martha, you might, you, you might know that actually. <laughs> uh, uh, and of Katie Green, uh, but, but Pierce Butler. So there's nothing else really besides that. I did recently actually just find a letter from Pierce Butler from 1792 to her. There's also a couple of poems that mention him. So that's the only, like concrete evidence, I guess I would say that she had any type of right. suitor. But, but I mean, the reason but, I think she stayed a you know little was just she didn't have to. She didn't have to get married. Yeah. I mean, she was in a really solid financial mm -hmm. position. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, from what we we think about her relationship, they, they with really Samuel, did. I don't know that she would yeah. even. She was much older at that point as well. Too. Well, yes. So, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But 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 there might have been something. There there was the one but. Pierce Butler thing. <laughs> um, Mitchell Kramer asked uh, if you could talk at all about her relationship with Martha Washington. Yes. Yes. I I and I always feel bad because I do tend to leave out Martha, and I don't mean to do that. They they also had a great relationship. Um, they really bonded over. Um, the Custis grandchildren. I, I don't know how familiar you are with with Martha, my, uh, but and and their family. But they uh, Martha and George had um, they adopt basically adopted two of Martha's grandchildren, and they lived with them during the presidency and throughout the period between the presidency and the war. Um, but Martha and Elizabeth really bonded over that. They bonded over um, kind of teaching them how to be upright citizens, like we've talked about, but they also, um, they seem to enjoy conversation. Um, they, they have some letters back and forth to each other. It's not the same level of emotional connection as, as her in Washington, but, um, but yeah, they definitely also had a relationship too. 
So we're, we're, we're running out of time, which I feel terrible about because we still have like seven outstanding questions. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like go quick. We'll answer them all. All right, all right. Okay. all right, first off, who has the largest treasure trove of Powell-related correspondence? My HSP, hands down, and library company. They're a combination, but unless there's some secret library out there, the HSP and, and library company have the most. Um, but they're spread out in so many places university of indiana uh delaware um yale there's all there there's letters everywhere but the main 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 bulk is hsp and, and library all right so now from letters to monographs sarah watson asks or oh, first she thanks you for this wonderful talk and oh, then she oh, says, thank you sarah for watching <laughs> i would love to hear more about elizabeth's books do you have a sense of what types of things she was reading did she own novels political texts religious books all sorts, all sorts. Yeah. She was, yeah, she was reading anything from from the British Spy, which was a fiction novel that mentioned her uh, her brother in law William Byrd. Which I do have to make a shameless plug. A good friend of mine is writing a biography on Mary Willing Byrd, so you'll have to check that out when it comes out. Amy flew grad to teach, uh, <laughs> but she was also reading um, David Hume, Rousseau. She she was reading. Uh, history of the Roman Empire. She she was reading encyclopedia. Yeah, encyclopedia. She purchased. Current she events. yeah. She continued on the encyclopedia run just after Samuel died. She buys the next two volumes of the encyclopedia. So really, just about anything she could get her hands on. She's I think she was well reading read. Wollstonecraft. Wollstone, she yeah. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft. Not a not a huge, not a huge fan. fan. She she so. But that's that's <laughs> a longer conversation. <laughs> All right, I'm going to give the last question of the evening to Charles Keats, who asks, are there any examples of direct correspondence between Benjamin Franklin and Elizabeth Powell? Yes. Yes, yeah. there is. There is a letter at the American Philosophical Society from, uh, so, uh, from, uh, from Elizabeth Powell to Benjamin Franklin, uh, 1788. And she, it's not a very long letter, um, but she thanks him for loaning her a carriage, his carriage, for a man from Virginia who was ill and needed the carriage. And she thanks him and, of course, says, I think she says, I hope you are well on this fine day, dear Dr. Franklin, or something very sweet. So, so yes, yes. <laughs> Lovely. Well, um, thank you, everyone who asked great questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to everybody, but 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 thanks most of all, Kayla, Sam. This was wonderful. I really enjoy all of the enthusiasm and expertise you brought to this. Thank you so much for having us, Will, and thank yeah. you to the library company too. And, to yes. To, to yes. And if anybody has more questions, feel free to reach out. Will, you can share my email if you want. Okay. And visit Powell House. It Come is beautiful, and and it's 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 a real treat. So and it's so, been a wonderful time being here. Well, thank you both. Uh, for everybody else who's tuning in, uh, next week we're taking a, a week off. We're going to postpone uh, Daniel Sheikin's book preview, but we'll be meeting in two weeks, two weeks from today, uh, with Cameron uh, Segelius, who's going to be talking about slave revolt and the practices of containment. So I hope you'll all join us then. Until then, have a great evening. Take care of yourselves and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>